Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're all settled in. Mm-hmm. Ready? All right. Mm-hmm. Hello, everyone. I'm Daniel. I'm Carrie. I'm Patrick. I'm Ken. And welcome to the 1963 Oscars. I believe I'm back on the correct number. I may have said the wrong number last time, and I'm not fixing it. This is If I Ran the Oscars, our podcast where we look at one movie from each year the Academy Awards were broadcast on TV, and we take a look at what it won for, as well as a few other categories, so we get a good breadth of filmmaking expertise and appreciation. Uh, And and we do this random. We do this random. We roll the dice, which is why we we unfortunately dodged West Side Story. Last, last time. And this time we did not dodge Lawrence of Arabia because we watched Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> uh, it was nominated for... A anybody lot. want to guess what? It, how many oh, it was nominated boy. for? Like 10 or 12? More than 10. It was 10. It was 10. And it oh. won for 7. Yeah, it's kind of a big number. It also got the Golden Globe for Best Drama and the BAFTA for Best Film and Outstanding British Film. Wow. I... In 1991, it went into the Library of Congress National Film Registry. In 98, the American Film Institute put it at number 5 on their top 100 films of the century. And when they updated their list in 2007, it only dropped to 7th. Huh. In 99, the British Film Institute named it the third greatest British film. Third greatest British film. And in 2004, uh, a poll among leading filmmakers... Named it the best film, British film. Well, they know something that I don't know. Yeah. I'm just going to put that right out there. There's kind of a lot going on. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is based on the life of an actual person named T.E. Lawrence and the book that he wrote. All right. Do you know what the name of the book is? My Life in Arabia? It's called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I did, I not, know, I did not know it either. I... Uh, However, there was a play based on the book, and Alec Guinness played Lawrence in the play. Huh. Huh. When was that? That was... It was not much earlier. Uh, Let's see here. Oh, it was not called that. It was called Ross. Uh, Terrence Radigan was writing it in the 50s. He started as a screenplay, but it fell through as a film project and got changed into a play. Hmm. Uh, well, that's curious. Yep. I uh, in that in the play centered primarily on Lawrence's alleged homosexuality, which did not come up in the film at all because it was not a big deal for his story. I think. Well, and I think that might have pushed the boundaries of propriety. Ge- propriety, for sure. Yeah. F- you know, well, in, we're going yeah. to make a, a film that that's going to make a lot time, of money. For yeah. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. In the 40s was the first time someone was interested in making a film. Wow. And they had pegged Lawrence Olivier to play Lawrence, among a few others that they had tried, but didn't have enough financial support. Hmm. So this is the time that they actually pulled it off. Uh, Lawrence Olivier was also... He was... Once they got around to making the movie this time, let's see... Ah, he was supposed to be Prince Faisal. Hmm. But he unfortunately dropped out. Mm-hmm. So, who was in this one? Because this is where, usually where we go from here. And this movie was Go Big or Go Home. This movie was pretty Go Big or Go Home. Mm-hmm. However, Peter O'Toole, who is kind of well known by now, this point. Yeah. So here we are in 2020. Let's go down some list of people who were asked to do the part and turned it down. Uh, Albert Finney, virtual unknown at the time. 
He was fired after two days, and nobody knows why. Creative differences. Creative differences. Marlon Brando. We don't want him in this Anthony film. Perkins. Montgomery Clift. Alec Guinness himself. But Montgomery Clift was already like a movie star, wasn't mm-hmm. he? At this point. I People did not necessarily like O'Toole's choice at the beginning, but definitely he worked into it. Uh, a man by the name of Noel Coward, who I do not recognize and I'd have to click Noel on. Noel Coward? Who, who is yeah. he? Who's he? He's big. He's a very big. He's a big name that mm-hmm. I should recognize. Well, you're too young. I'm too young. After seeing the premiere of the film, said of O'Toole, "If you had been any prettier, the film would have been called Florence of Arabia." <laughs> that's, that's a good colorism right there. <laughs> well, and is, do you think that's because of his makeup and his and the focusing on his blue eyes and? I mean, they did a real good job of that. So. Hmm. History of P- for Peter O'Toole, he, his film debut was 1959. Just before this. Three years before. And then he was nominated for Best Actor for this film. He did not win. Hmm. In fact, he has been nominated seven other times and still has not won, giving him the record for most nominations for acting without a win. Hmm. Beckett, Lion in Winter, Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Ruling Class, The Stuntman, My Favorite Year, and Venus, 2006, which was after he got his honorary Academy Award. Wow. Well, and if the people at home don't know this, Mm -hmm. they should be watching Lion in Winter every year for Christmas because it's a Christmas movie. Mm Mm-hmm. He also has four Golden Globes, a BAFTA, and a Primetime Emmy. Huh. So, you know. Yeah, he's been around. He's been around. He does good stuff. I does not say he's a knight. So I don't think he is. Well, he could have turned it down. He could have turned it down. There have been people that have done it. He played Hamlet in the National Theater's first production of it in 1963. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of stage stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, next on our list of people who are in this movie is Alec Guinness. Those of you who have been listening to the podcast for this entire time, thank you for doing so. We really appreciate your patronage. Also, we've talked about him before. Yes, we have. Uh, Good reason. So mm-hmm. we won't go into too much detail about it here. Except to remind you that the last time he was in a film we talked about, he was playing a man in charge who had quite good passive-aggressive sass. And in this film, he plays a man who is in charge and has good passive-aggressive sass. And if we ever get around to watching Star Wars, he will play a man who is kind of in charge with passive-aggressive sass. Mm-hmm. There's a pattern. It's a pattern, and he's good at it. Uh, next on our list of people who are in this movie, Anthony Quinn. And this one has a very interesting f- anecdotal fact from uh, the production of this film. He did his own makeup. What? I thought that was just for high school. He used a photograph of the actual guy he was portraying. And an anecdote Whoa. from the set says, The first time he arrived on set, the director told his assistant to call Anthony Quinn and say that they were going to replace him because this guy who showed up Looks the part much better. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm not okay. sur- I am not surprised about that. I looked at the picture. He did a good job. I think we all the should big, strive. The, 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 his, the nose is different because it's very much not an Arabic mm-hmm. nose, but no, he did real good. Uh, I think we should all strive for that in our everyday hmm. Anthony life. Quinn, in fact, has some more things going for him because he was in a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, Guns of Navarone, for sure. Uh, Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor twice, Viva Zapata and Lust for Life. Two other nominations 
in the Best Leading Actor category. Five Golden Globe nominations, two BAFTA noms. Uh, I thought I saw something in here about he got an award and he was like the first Latin American guy to get it. Maybe I was misreading it. He's done good stuff. Mexican-American actor, painter, writer, and film director. Oh no, I remember who I was looking at for that one. We'll get to him later. There's a lot of people to talk about in this one. Well, a lot of men, you mean. A lot of men. Uh, You'll notice in this one we are not going to talk about too many ladies. This is a film about uh, World War I Saudi Arabia. Ladies, ladies do not feature in this film. Nope, there, there are no female speaking parts. True. Uh, next person who we will touch on very briefly, Jack Hawkins. Those of you who have been blah blah say that whole spiel again, because he was uh, also in Bridge on the River Kwai. He's been around a lot. He's been around a lot. This is the third time we've talked about him. I can't remember what was the third one. River Kwai, I remember, but uh, uh, Ben Hurt. Oh yes, yes. He was the Roman naval admiral. Quintus Arius. Thank you. Oh, good job. Yeah. So I, I'm good for something once in a while. I and, don't. You cleaned the garage today. You get super yeah. kudos. And then we're going to move on to someone who it's a shame we haven't talked about before. I uh, Omar Sharif. But maybe we'll get another chance. Maybe we'll get another are... chance if we roll the dice on Doctor Zhivago, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. where we'll get to a lot of people we've talked about. Right. Uh, so he's been in some things. He is straight up Egyptian, so he's local, local-ish to the area. Mm-hmm. One of the things in this film is, when possible, like most of their extras mm-hmm. and other guys are, they tried to get people from the area. Well, which is a good thing. Uh, he has only gotten a nomination for his role in this film. He was not nominated otherwise. I. Uh, his, he started acting in Egyptian films in 1954. This was his first English language role. Hmm. Thus the reason yeah. he got a credit as introducing yeah. Mark Sharif, if you recall. Uh, yep. Uh, Leanne insists on using ethnic actors when possible to make the film authentic. Uh, he would later use his ambiguous ethnicity in other films because he spoke six languages. Hmm. He's a smart man. Good bridge player. Mm-hmm. Oh, in fact, he has an entire section on his Wikipedia page about Bridge, and I was going to mention it. Huh. Uh, I have to scroll through his extremely long film career first, because he did stuff for a while. Because uh, he's, a, he's a good working actor. He only died in 2015. Yeah. At one time, he was in the top 50 contract Bridge players in the world. Wow. Uh, he represented uh, the United Arab Republic in 1964's World Bridge Olympiad, and he captained the Egyptian team in 1968. Uh, he had a bridge game on MS-DOS. Wow. The Omar Sharif World in- Individual Championship in 1990 offered the largest total purse in the history of bridge. Now that I didn't know. $200,000 according to this. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, by the year 2000, he considered it an addiction, and it's not playing. I could see that. So, yeah. this guy, good actor. Mm-hmm. I think he did a very good job in this one. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's yeah. a shame we don't have to talk about best supporting actor for our random roles. Right. Because uh, so, we would be talking about that. Yep. Uh, this is the one I was looking up. Who was this guy? I don't know what you're looking at. I have to scroll on, like, multiple pages, and my phone is not... Ah! 
the Turkish guy in charge with the creepy mustache. Jose he Ferrer. Was, Jose Ferrer. He was creepy. His character, I believed, Yeah. I really believed his acting job that that guy was a creep. He accepted the role only on the condition that he be paid more than O'Toole and Sharif plus a Porsche. A car or a portion? Por- car, Porsche. Okay. Uh, Peter O'Toole once said that he learned more about screen acting from Ferrer than he could in any acting class. And Ferrer considers it his best performance. Hmm. Ferrer is the one I was thinking about when I was thinking about the... Nice. Uh, about a... Latinx a, man? A very good Latino actor. Oh, his, because uh, he's, Puerto, he's Puerto Rican. Uh, he is the first Puerto Rican and also Hispanic person to win an Academy Award. 1950, Cyrano de Bergerac. Yep, Cyrano. He, that, yep. Was a, that was a, just a... Dan, one of my favorite films. In 47, he got the Tony for the theatrical version of Cyrano de Bergerac. Uh, he is in the American Theater Hall of Fame, and he's the first actor to receive the National Medal of Arts in 1985 from Reagan. Wow. Okay. That's why I was remembering he was the, there was a first in here, and I was wrong on which guy it was. That brings us essentially to the end of the actors you may recognize in this film, as far as I know. It does not bring us to the end of people related to this film that we need to know about. Because David Lian does require mentioning. Because we've talked about him before. Yeah. He did Bridge on the River Kwai. He directed that film. And in the future, Dr. Zhivago. Oh, we haven't got We've had yet. a lot of actors that are being in multiple things. It's it's almost like they he really liked working with them or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, however... What we've not talked about is the producer. Because Leanne is the director, the producer is Sam Spiegel. Mm-hmm. He's important for a few reasons. One of which is, we've talked about, we should have talked about him twice. We should have? Yes. But didn't? I would like you to name for me the movies that we've watched on this podcast that you would consider to be the best movies so far. Uh, let's see. I think we got to rank Ben Hur up there. All right, we'll skip Ben Hur. That's not on the. What are the next two? (laughs) But um, I'm trying to think of what we've watched. We've watched Quiet Man. I thought this would be faster, audience. No, no, I'm no, sorry. No, I, I, I gotta look at my list. <laughs> well, this, well, this is. Well, I say this I is before Grandpa was guess, was appearing on the podcast. I gotta look at my list, and I don't have my list in front. All right. Of me. Well, I will save you the time of the list because I would say on the waterfront. Oh yes, on the waterfront. And I would say sure. Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. And I would say that those two movies and Lawrence of Arabia are the three movies that got Best Picture that Sam Spiegel was the producer for. Hmm. Which makes him the first sole independent producer to have three best pictures. Hmm. Wow. Because before any other studio was a group. Mm-hmm. This is one guy. And he worked a lot with David Leanne, of course. He, um, he was also producer for The African Queen, which we haven't talked about on this nope. podcast. Hmm. That would have been a 1952. Yeah, which uh, is... Which is right when we were getting started. Right when we were getting started, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Apologies, listeners. So, it's a shame that we mm-hmm. hadn't mentioned him previously, because the fact that we ended up talking about him, about two his others movies. of his movies, yeah, was yeah. kind of interesting. And because the soundtrack is coming up today, if I'm remembering right, 
Oh, best song is coming up today. Not best, mm-hmm. not best score, but best song is coming up today, and it, that is also important. Uh, so, is this a song, or is it more of a theme? There's more of a theme, but I do appreciate that this is going kind of back to a re- theme repeated mm-hmm. and doing a very mm-hmm. good job mm-hmm. of that. I uh, the scoring mm-hmm. is a little interesting on this one. What do you mean, a little interesting? Well, a couple of things. One, Maurice Jarre. Wrote it. Little known at the time. Yeah, he's French. Selected only after William Walton and Malcolm Arnold had proven unavailable. Well, Mm. thank heavens for that. He wrote wrote the orchestral music, or at least the basics of it, Mm -hmm. in six weeks. Wow. And that young people is without the aid of computers. Yeah. You got to remember that. Uh, This is like old school... You gotta think it in your head, use your piano, whatever, mm-hmm. and write it down with a piece of paper and a writing implement. Uh, another guy is listed as the conductor of the orchestra on the credits. Mm-hmm. He did the orchestration. At the back. He could mm-hmm. not conduct most of the score, due in part to his failure to adapt to the intricate timings of each cue, so Jare replaced him as the conductor. Huh. And just did it himself. Mm-hmm. This is Jari's first Academy Award for Music Score Substantially Original. Mm-hmm. And on American Film Institute's Top 25 Film Scores, where do you guess this one lands? It's probably up there pretty high. I think that even now the uh, the theme is very recognizable. Yep. Three. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, it's mm. top ten for sure. Top three. It's number three. Yeah. I'd like to uh, make mention of the uh, British March that I recognized in there. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate the fact that it was is an actual British military march. Mm-hmm. I have it on a uh, vinyl that I've owned for 50 years. Yep, this listed uh, The Voice of the Guns. Voice of the Guns. By I thought Kenneth... it was a math major. This says The Voice of the Guns by Kenneth Alford. Okay, okay. And well, he also wrote uh, Colonel Bogey. Yep, which I was about to say. Good job. <laughs> but, but Alford is not his real name. What is his name? I don't know. I cannot remember. I will click on his name and see here. Frederick Joseph Ricketts. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, you can't blame him for changing to that. Yep. But, good, good first name, anyway. But Grandpa recognized the Colonel Bogey March, which we've heard previously because Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. A complete recording of the score was not heard until 2010. Hmm. Well, because wow. that's the way they did things back in the day, kids. Yeah, they had an original soundtrack release, but it didn't have the full score. Interesting. Yeah, I'll mm-hmm. tell you what. The... The movies that uh, this composer was involved in. Oh, yeah. The number of names of movies you would recognize the no- is quite amazing. The short list of notable scores from Wikipedia is like, mm-hmm. notable scores. The Train, Muhammad, Messenger of God, Lion of the Desert, Witness, Fatal Attraction, and Ghost. Mm-hmm. Fatal these are not yeah. small movies. Yeah. Julia and mm-hmm. Julia, Dead Poets Society... Um, the longest day, which was prior also to this hmm. movie. Also, there's a lot of notable movies in here. Every David Leon film after Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. Huh. He found his guy and he stuck with it. Right. Well, and they must have worked well together. Probably in much the same way that like John Williams and Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. kind of are just joined at the hip. I uh, oh, he's going to win best original score later. You'll never guess what movie it's for. It's Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, 
maybe we'll roll that one. Maybe we won't, and we'll just... If we roll that one, we're just going to say hello and goodbye. Yeah. Why? <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> well, because we've already talked about all the people. Yeah. <laughs> I know, there's, there's we, more. It's a movie worth seeing, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But All right. All right. I... Not gonna say much about this film, and that's not because it was three and a half hours long and we'd be here all day. This is another one that I think was very good, and so discussion of plot is gonna be saved for. You should watch it for yourself, but we can talk about what we thought about it. Well, well, well oh, before we talk about the three things we're supposed well, to we talk about. Well, we should talk about like how how what we thought of the movie before we talk about the specific. Well, I did fall asleep in the middle of it. I wasn't but... gonna mention it, but I was gonna let you do that. But that's because <laughs> I did something really boring for most of my day today and just needed a nap. All right. I I have one fact that I read off the Wikipedia page that was interesting. <clears throat> well, one interesting and one kind of silly. And then I have thoughts about the overall plot structure. The silly fact. O'Toole uh, found the saddle of his camel uncomfortable and bought a piece of foam rubber during a break in filming and added it to his saddle. Many of the extras copied him, and sheets of foam can be seen on many of the horse and camel saddles. The Bedouin nicknamed O'Toole, I'm not going to say the Arabic, because I'm certain I might get it wrong. But the meaning is, father of the sponge. (laughs) (laughs) He spent a bit of time on a a camel saddle for that movie. During the filming of the Aqaba scene, he was nearly killed when he fell off his camel but it fortunately stood over him, preventing the horses of the extras from trampling him. Coincidentally, a very similar mishap befell actual Lawrence at the Battle of Abu el Lasal in 1917. Wow. So I thought Crazy. that was interesting. I Also, Jordan, who is mentioned here as being, you know, because they did a lot of filming there, uh, banned the film because they did not like the portrayal of Arab uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Egypt really liked it. They thought it was great Arab nationalism. How about that? So that was, you know, whatever. I had to have a bit of a think about this movie because I kept drawing parallels between this film and traditional American war movie. It's kind of, for me, it was an obvious comparison because it's about one soldier doing something that no one believed soldiers could do. And that's kind of the plot of most war movies that we see. Uh, And this film does not pull its punches, especially at the end. And I appreciate what they did. It does not pull its punches about the fact that war sucks. Okay. Most of the time with the American, with, you know, traditional American war movies, it's romanticized to the point that the war looks good. Sanitary. Yeah. And there's still, like, blood and guts everywhere, but it's in service of, despite the blood and guts, everything's okay. And by the end of this film, it was not okay. And it was not shy about saying that. This did not end on a happy note for our main character. In a way that I think if this film was made today, that would not have happened. Hmm. They would have tidied the package. They would have tidied it up and made the ending work better. It's not to say that every film, every modern film always has a happy ending. I tried to think of more examples, and I kept coming back to Looper, and I'm very disappointed with myself, because I just (laughs) like that movie and I want to talk about it. (laughs) But most of the time you'll get some sort of a good guys win, bad guys lose. And in this one, 
nobody won really and Lawrence definitely did not come out of this a winner he came out of it respected by the people who started the film not respecting him but that's not a win and I don't think he considered it a win either yeah he it was really interesting how it how it concluded in yeah. that regard I um, also had kind of he seemed he seemed um, disappointed isn't the right word well that's but, the word I was thinking yeah you know, but it, but just it's like I went through all this and he went through a lot yeah and kind of ended with oh I didn't I didn't really achieve much here yeah except for the fact that everyone know. around him said he achieved so much yeah I think it just didn't end the way he wanted it to end no is the way it was portrayed. I also worked had to think a bit about nailing down his character. And the fact that I wanted to nail down his character is good. Because sometimes if I don't get a character, I don't give a crap. But that probably helped to propel your interest through the film. Yeah. Because you were constantly uh, rejiggering it. Yeah. In your mind about who is this character. Yeah. And it always, it kind of made sense because at the beginning he felt underserved, I think. Where he's a he's a cog in a machine and he wants to be an engine. And finally they're like, no, go over here, be your engine. And then when you break, we'll take you back and you can be a cog again. Well, and, and the way it was portrayed, they sent him off to do something that they thought was kind of a meaningless task. Yeah, meaningless and or, you know, like, if impossible. you want to do more than this, it's impossible. Yeah. And then he did it. Yeah. And that's when the ball started rolling of, uh, back to... Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, actually. I, this one, I think, actually is a better comparison. Is in this film, we see the progression of his lifestyle right, ramping up. And then a, after the intermission, so two-thirds of the way through, right about when things should be breaking down, things start breaking down and his lifestyle, which we agree is not a good lifestyle. Murdering people is bad. You heard it here fo first, folks. He finally starts to see that it's not all it's cracked up to be. And that's what I wish had happened in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Because she had a fast-going, ignore-the-rules lifestyle. And it didn't start low and rise. And it never seemed like she hit a brick wall. Right. Until, right, right, like, right. the exact end of the film. Mm -hmm. And this one definitely had a rise in what, I, what he thinks he's capable of. And then he hit a wall of, I have done too much or what I'm doing is wrong. And had to come to terms with that. And he had to decide, am I going to go back to the British Army, which he tried, spoilers, or say, or double down and decide, no, this is the life for me. And at the end, he tried that and it didn't work. More spoilers. Hmm. Well, I haven't thought this through, but because I haven't had time for one thing, I'm too old for another, but, but uh, I think about war in general. Everybody agrees war is bad. War is if, if you've ever been in the military with any, I hate to say, any rank at all, because I never had any, but when you read about war and politics, you realize that war is simply a tool of politics, and the people that have to actually do the work of war, if they weren't, if, if, they, if they weren't glorified, if there wasn't a Medal of Honor and various other sub, sub, subservient medals, war couldn't, probably couldn't exist, because you wouldn't be able to get anybody to do it. Or the people you could get to do it would be the people and, who are doing it because they like murder. Uh, well, and the, yeah, but then they're not going to be obedient. Yeah. The, yeah, the dark angels of uh, of human character. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I and, I get uh, where you're coming from. And uh, I, uh, to that extent, 
I excuse them all. Uh, yeah. Up to a point. Well, and that was part of this character's struggle. I mean, yeah. it's really yeah. interesting because there were, there were times when he was almost felt glorified. Yeah. And there were times when he thought, when, when he, you would perceive that he was feeling like the lowest of low humanity mm-hmm. during this film. Yeah. You know, I mean, where, where he was guilt ridden or, you know, regretful or whatever. And then there, then he would be back in the, in the glorified mode. Yeah. Depending on the circumstance and what had been going on and how the storyline was rolling. And I think he ended it pretty down. Mm-hmm. I, the well, war. not the only one. Yeah. Think of Patton. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember which war film I'm specifically thinking of when I am want to talk about I glorification of what's going on. And it's the one with Andrew Garfield in it, and he's a pacifist. And I'm going to have to look this up. I don't know what you're That one's pretty about. recent. Oh, oh, um, um, it's not Hacksaw Ridge. Is it? Yeah, it is Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. I was thinking of Dunkirk, and I don't know why. Yeah. But that one... I saw that one, and I do consider that one to be a well-done film. Oh, yeah. But that one is also a very good example of war movie over-patriotism. That patriotism is great and all, but it's it becomes unbelievable Yeah. to me how noble and right it makes war look. And this film did not look noble and right. And I appreciated yeah. that crap out of it. Yeah. That feels more yeah. honest. Yeah. Yes. And it feels more like a person told this story. Yeah. That there was a guy named T.E. Lawrence who lived through this yeah. and got to the end and said, I'm not going to skip the bad parts. Yeah. Well, there are definitely some good war movies out there. If you want to catch one, watch the last full measure. Another true story. I, Operation Chromite from our last Operation Chromite I podcast. Very, well very good. Yeah. And... These war like it's not bad. Like Saving Private Ryan is a good movie. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that it's not a well made movie. But if you want to look at honest war movies, mm-hmm. those are harder to find. And I think this is going to be one of them. Now we're not talking about how honest the movie is. We have to talk about our categories. Oh yeah, because we've talked for a while about nothing, <laughs> and now we have to talk about something. First, it won for best cinematography in the color category because it's a color movie. Because, boy, the the sun over the desert was bald. Oh, I would have given an award for that shot. Just that one. Some pretty interesting screenshots where where the if you look at the screen, it was a horizon line. Mm-hmm. And nothing else for, yeah. for an extended period. Yeah. You know, you just saw some sky and some sand okay. in a horizontal line. Remember, remember the Cooper Theater that was over on the west side that mm-hmm. had that really mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. I mean this screen big wide screen this was the widest screen you had ever seen <laughs> had mm-hmm. ever seen and and it was old school it had um, fabric curtain that would part before the beginning of the show like the, the mm-hmm. movie would just beginning with those opening credits and the screen would be pulling apart mm-hmm. on that huge screen this would have been a gorgeous film to see mm-hmm. on a screen like that and when we've talked about films that were shot on location before, but this was shot on location in like Jordan and Morocco with permission from the government and everything. Right. right. They, when they are riding camels in the desert, they are, they are like a quarter of a mile away with their camera on a walkie talkie telling them to start riding on their camels. And then they get their hundred extras on their camels 
to or more. or more to spread out across the desert. Mm-hmm. The work it took to make this film, I definitely, I can definitely tell that Scorsese would have looked at this guy and gone, "Yeah, that's how we do film," mm-hmm. because Scorsese does crap like this all the time. If this was big, yeah. I yep. uh, next one art direction, which is going to be more about the sets and the arrangement of things more than the so film you, itself. So you mean the the places that look like the British had taken over some palaces? Yes. For their headquarters. Set design, set mm-hmm. placement, things like that. Other than tents. Other than well, tents would be included in there. Some of the tents were pretty nice. I thought I got I got shots of things I'd never seen before. Yeah. I never noticed them. And it definitely this it looked authentic. It didn't it look for one, it definitely looked like it was the nineteen tens. They didn't have random future stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But like things looked w- weather worn very well. There was a lot of good attention to detail there. It did win for this. This is one of its wins. I beat out the music man, mutiny on the bounty, and the touch of mink and the wonderful world of the brothers Grimm. Mm. So lots of things going on there. Next one, best song. Fortunately, didn't really qualify because it didn't have a song. Didn't have a song with lyrics. It didn't really have a song. I you'll remember we said Henry Mancini won this year last time mm-hmm. because he did mm-hmm. for Days of Wine and Roses. Well, and if the music man was this year, uh, that got best uh, music, Musical. best scoring of music adaptation or treatment, which is their way of saying it's mostly a musical. This film, as I uh, mentioned before, was. Uh, best music score, substantially original. Uh, beat out To Kill a Mockingbird, which was, which I believe could have been on our list. Hmm. Uh, it did also win Best Sound, which has to do not only with the music but the sound editing, which I would also believe. But that's not on our list. What is on our list is costume design. Hey, the costumes were totally believable. The costumes were pretty darn believable. Would you believe it was not even nominated? <laughs> Probably wow. because they weren't Flamboyant. They were not. The, the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm won, and if you're going to try and compete against a movie that's, uh, if I poke it, it's almost certainly going to be about, oh, uh, there's a dragon on at the front. Yeah, no, this is definitely fairy tale stuff. <laughs> well, the diversity of Grimm. <laughs> One of the highest grossing films of 1962. This is the only thing it won for. <laughs> mm. I, wow. but I, the costumes were correct. They were not Incredible, mm-hmm. but it's because they weren't supposed to be. Right. right. Even the prince was not like gaudy European prince. He was, I am the cleanest man in Arabia, and by the words I speak, you shall know that I am, you know, the wisest man in Arabia, and that's all you need to know. His costume was his voice. Every British officer had a Sam Brown belt on. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep, and it was all correct. It was not mm-hmm. incredible. It was correct. Well, uh, and sometimes, well, for me, because I do get distracted by costumes. You do. I think that sometimes the costumes can be just wrong, just off enough that then uh, it makes me not believe the characters. Yes. Yeah. Uh, fact on Guinness, now that we've gone past him, but now I'm remembering because yeah. his costume was how he spoke. Uh, he was also uh, made up to look like the real guy. I uh, Some people who... Uh, stopped him on the street in Jordan who knew the prince and mistook him for the prince. Oh, wow. Who had recently died. Wow. And he developed his Arab accent 
from conversations with Omar Sharif. Well, because that's he, appropriate. He, 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 I mean, he sounded like Alec Guinness, but he definitely right. had an accent, and it didn't sound like it didn't. You know, it wasn't forced. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like me trying to have a. The, you know, I think the accent. usual example is like I uh, people trying to fake an Irish accent. Yeah. You can almost always tell when an actor is faking an Irish accent because they never do it right. <laughs> Although the, when Liam Neeson goes full on glib, oh, Irish, <laughs> it, you think he's making that up. No, wait a minute, that's really him. Yeah. I uh, in any case, costumes good, not award winning good. Mm-hmm. The f- right, right. We give awards to whoever they got who was buying these costumes in bulk because they needed a lot of them, mm-hmm. but that you don't get awards for buying things in bulk. There's a lot of fabric. There's a lot of fabric. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're not walking around in, you know, Speedos. They're wearing like two to three layers a piece. Right. Full length. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in general, I think this movie is definitely worth watching. It's not... I don't think this is going to go down as our favorite movie. Yeah, make sure you start it early. Make sure you start early. We started this one at, what, 4.30-ish? Yeah. And we were done in the past eight? Yeah. Well, I, I, and don't do something boring first, because then it'll just yeah. make you fall asleep. Yeah. But... That's my tip. The music is very good. It's... If you're a fan of John Williams' use of theme throughout, you'll really like this film for that. Peter O'Toole is good at what he does. Yeah. Everyone in this film is good at what they do. And, yeah, that's about all there is to say about this one. Remember Unless you have more ideas. Remember the intermission is important. Oh, yeah. Nope, there is an intermission and an entrance, so you have time to go to the bathroom in the middle. That's right. <laughs> you don't You don't need a run P app for this one. It's built nope. in for you. <laughs> all right. Ready? Yep. We want to thank the Academy for doing its job and thereby pointing us in the direction of quality filmmaking. All right. See you, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.